Ah, the weekend and plenty from the day's radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. It's a disability. Yeah, but it's not recognised here. It is recognised in the UK, but but not here. You say I will need a walking stick soon. 29, yeah, oh, 100%. 29 yeah. years of age. Leaf, uh, leaf mold is the most. It takes a long time if you're just using leaves yeah. uh, to break down. Are you saying that down. you should put something through them to speed up the process? I you can, do. yeah. Yeah, you can yeah. pee on them. No, oh my God. Down in the garden, eating worms. Fat ones and thin ones, juicy ones and wiggly ones. Down in the garden, eating worms. I'm deeply impressed. I mean, that that is not what I expected our first uh, point of contact to be today. (laughs) And as it's the weekend, we'll start with Oliver Callan and the return of Callan's Kicks. High five me, Shekhar. You're in a merry mood, Prime Minister. I have only two months left in the top job. I just breathe in and smell that heather. The pension freshly baked in the oven by waiting for me. Of course, you'll still be the cow after the reshuffle, kerfuffle. Exactly. And in terms of it'll be historic. Yes. Because I'll actually get to retire while still in office. And I'm popular. Tis unheard of. Even though Fianna Fáil's about as popular as my housing for damn all policies. I don't mention the housing. Look at Sup, losers. Not sorry I'm late. Oh, dear. <laughs> Alright, uh, I don't think there's anything else. So uh, guys, like, oh. hello, I'm late. What? This is where you enviously give me the side eye for being so nonchalant and effortless. Uh, we didn't even notice you weren't here, man. Wow, that's really rough coming from you, nobody. Whatevs. Wait, you can hear me? Oh, no. I see dead careers. Am I politically... Listen, I have to go and tuck in the backbenchers and uh, give them a wee foot rub. But, 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 guys, I've... All right, that's enough for today. Remember to keep shouting at the shinners and laughing at the Brits. Thank uh, you very but, much. Uh, the time for me, Pilates. And, and don't forget, everybody, attendance is mandatory at the meeting next week to you turn on the concrete blocks levy. Meeting dismissed. Um, cool. Yeah. From Callan's Kicks... And on the Ryan Tipperty show, the brilliant historian and author Lucy Worsley was talking about her new book on Agatha Christie, a very elusive woman. But before she came into studio, Ryan was talking worms. Do you remember the worm song that went like, they say I eat worms, the long, fat, slimy ones slip down my throat, the other ones stick to my teeth. Does anyone remember? That is something I have no idea about, but I have... Also, no doubt that the text will hop now in a moment. We'll get back to you on that. Okay, so then Lucy Worsley popped in to talk about Agatha Christie and sing about worms. You 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 know the worm song, but you can't quite recall where it came from. Your your knowledge of it is that right? That's true. It goes: nobody likes me, everybody hates me. Down in the garden, eating worms, fat ones and thin ones, juicy ones and wiggly ones. Down in the garden, eating worms. I'm deeply impressed. I mean, that that is not what I expected our first uh, point of contact to be today. (laughs) Well, thank you for the suggestion of of whoever whoever sent in. Well, thank you for for bringing that... that, that very choice piece of natural world music to our world this morning. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Well, my initials, LW, also stand for lowly worm. (laughs) Okay, this is great. Uh, You're very adaptable, obviously, and you're well able for whatever gets thrown at you. So that's a good start. Congratulations on your book about Agatha Christie. Let's just say that for starters. Oh, 
Thank you so much. Because I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed your, your foray into the world of crime before. We spoke, actually spoke briefly on the phone, you won't remember, but it was a thousand years ago about crime and all of this. But this is getting more into the micro again with Agatha Christie. Um, were you a reader of her books when you were a child or a young adult? Yes, they were my treat at the start of the school holidays. I'd check one out of the library as a, a kind of little gift to myself. But also used to watch on Sunday nights with my granny, you know, yeah. Poirot. Yes. Uh, but uh, one of the things I wanted to do with this book was to take people behind that kind of cosy Sunday night yes. image of who Agatha Christie might have been. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And you make it in the book is that for a lot of people, their perception of Agatha Christie is, in fact, Sunday night, you know, with a, with a, with the kettle on, the fire on and with your grandmother, whoever it might be. And it, it kind of took ownership of the of the of the Agatha Christie story, didn't it? That that the the kind of soft, gentle crimes, because mm, mm. a little uh, digging will show a much darker story. It's also the way that her publishers marketed her in later life as mm. a, a sort of cosy old lady, perhaps a bit like Miss Marple herself wearing a tweed suit and eating a cream tea. Yeah. But, you know, in fact, she was a woman of the 20th century. She was up to date. She yeah. was modern. She enjoyed, you know, that her, her modernity goes from things like liking to drive really fast yes. and she liked surfing and it goes to her interest in the new science of psychology yeah. psychiatry she was a very 20th century woman OK we've got loads of places to go here huh. and, and that's why part of the thing is that as you say 20th century woman in, in so many ways because her lifespan kind of brought the 20th it was covered the 20th century I, mean, I don't know if you saw that documentary on Frank Sinatra it did something similar and it was just this American epic but this is a very British epic story that takes us from the beginning of the century essentially right up to the, her dying day yes. So, so her life uh, was complicated uh, we're, we all are complicated novels but hers was uh, very much if you go back to the very beginning take us through her the, the wealth if you like and the kind of class background because I think that all informs who mm. she, who, what she would write mm. When she was born in 1890 so under under the last days of Queen Victoria. She was born into a wealthy family in the seaside resort of Torquay on the south coast. But uh, <laughs> she had a luxurious childhood mm. until it started to go wrong. Her father died, the family money got sort of frittered away and her destiny, which was to be a married lady, just didn't happen. Mm. And then her life was thrown off course again by World War One, that saw her working as a nurse and doing things that were really unexpected for a nice Edwardian young lady. Because she, she was not, she was discouraged from being educated, discouraged from reading. Um, these weren't the, the, the done thing for young ladies in the late 19th, early 20th century. Well, she did have an older sister, Madge, and Madge had been sent to boarding school. And when Madge came home again, she was discovered to have taken on all of these distressing characteristics like independent thought and a disturbing <laughs> sexual magnetism. Yeah. So Agatha was very much not educated. Mm -hmm. And when it was uh, at one point, her nanny says to her mum, I'm really sorry, ma'am, Miss Agatha has learnt how to read. Yeah, and that was a, a, a kind of crime of sorts. Well, sort of. But it also meant that she could completely have the freedom to educate herself. Yes. 
and that left her with a lasting freshness of mind. I think she was completely an autodidact. And Ryan asked Lucy if she knew how many books were published by Agatha Christie. Nobody actually knows because they were published in America with different titles and it gets terribly confusing yeah. and there are short story collections, but at least 80. Okay. When, when she was 80, they celebrated her 80th book. Which you felt was a bit contrived maybe even on, at the time. But her, the stories that she writes, you, you go through them and you pick out, you try to find bits of her real life. Isn't that it? I got that sense that you kind of said, well, this is how she feels about that to a certain extent and it feels about that and it feels about that. Her whole life was kind of as seen through the prism of her thrillers. Uh, you could you could pick out a sense of the woman herself. Yes, once you know about her own life story, it's a whole extra level of pleasure in reading the novels because exactly. you can spot things and yes. you go, aha, I yeah. know who that is. So let's let's go through her her life in times, and we can come back then after that. She the, the man she would marry, the first man she would marry. Tell us a little bit about him. Oh, Archibald Christie. Now, when she met him, she had already had nine marriage proposals. She was young, she was blonde, she was attractive. She kept turning them down. But then she met the tenth man, and the thing is, Archibald Christie was incredibly hot. She met him at a ball in 1912, and he was glamorously an aeroplane pilot, and he also rode... A motorbike. So do you know do you know who we're talking about here? We're basically talking about Tom Cruise yeah. in Top Gun. Or Steve McQueen. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so yeah. take us through that that relationship and Well, she was head over heels in love. Uh and then enticingly, I think, he got snatched away from her because it was nineteen fourteen yeah. and he went to war. And when he came home at Christmas nineteen fourteen, he was like, Come on, we gotta get married. And it was all done and dusted in twenty-four hours. But then she couldn't begin normal life as a married lady because he got sent back to France. So she had to go on living at home with her mum. And she started to work in the local field hospital that had mm. been very quickly set up in the town hall of Torquay. And she began to do difficult, disturbing, responsible work. She saw young men wounded and naked and dirty and young ladies weren't supposed to witness these things and she even began to get paid for her work which I think is important too given that she'd go on to be a professional woman and I think Ryan this is key for somebody who's going to be a detective writer because the job of the nurses was to look after the wounded right but it was also I think to witness the horror of war and not to let on outside the hospital. She had to go home to her mama and not say, I dealt with powerless, naked, wounded young men today. So connect that for me. The, the, you think this is critical for the I crime do, writer? I do, because... because I think it's an excellent training for somebody who would be a writer as Agatha Waltz, who was obsessed with the masks that people wear. Gotcha, OK. The way we pretend to be one thing, but actually we're covering up yes. something else. You've just underneath. described every Agatha Christie story exactly. that's ever written. Exactly, uh, and, yeah. uh, and these are the Christie tells, which we're going to talk about in a second, and the little tricks, I should say, that, that she uses. So Archibald Christie and herself um, got together. She When he came home from active service abroad, there, she was pregnant within a couple of months, and mm-hmm. along mm-hmm. comes their, their one and only daughter. Mm-hmm. Um now, their marriage fell apart. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about mm. that? Because, again, that was going to gr- cause enormous problems for Agatha Christie and change her path in life. Mm. She was a, a complex person. This is what draws me to her. Yes. There was a, there's definitely a capacity, I think, for, um, for her to experience what today would be called depression, I think. And in the 20s, she was doing great. She was publishing all of these books, but Archie couldn't settle. They kept moving house. And then in 1926, 
She had published her best book yet, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. What My a story. Goodness, it's yeah. fantastic. A game changer in that world. Oh. That, that's for another time. Yes, 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 yes. Yes. So, yes. yes, yes, yes. So she should have been on top of the world, but her mother died. She was experiencing grief. Yeah. She began to experience forgetfulness and insomnia and an inability to cope. And then it got even worse because her husband said he was leaving her yeah. for another woman. Ten years her junior. All the cliches. All the cliches that you can expect in life. And what made her perfect was that, like Archie, she was really good at golf. (laughs) The game changer. Yeah. But I think the the key to that as well is is the grief of losing her mother, who she was close to. And and, uh, people can underestimate the intensity of grief um, and what an illness it is in some ways. Yes. Well, illness is a key word here. Because in this year, the notorious year of 1926. Yes. This thing happened, which is perhaps the best-known event in her life, the notorious disappearance. And we'll get to that event in 1926 a bit later when we come back to that interview with Lucy Worsley from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on Today with Claire Byrne, Nature Calls on Unblasked Moor. Today's Irish Examiner has a front page headline which reads Home of Peg Sayers on Blasket Island used as toilet by day trippers. Caretakers who left the island last Tuesday after a six month stint there told the paper that tourists were regularly peeing and pooping in the ruins of Peg's first home because there are no public toilets on the island. But they're more worried that tourists are endangering the lives of seals in the island's famous seal colony. Well, I'm joined now by Brock Montgomery who lived there as a holiday home caretaker since last April and also Billy O'Connor who's manager of the Great Blasket Island Experience. Good morning to you both. Brock, I'll start with you because yourself and your partner Claire lived on Blasket Island for six months and you're both really concerned, aren't you, about the impact that tourists are having on the seal colony. Tell us what you witnessed and why you're so concerned. Hi Claire, thanks for having us. Um, Yeah, for sure. It's definitely, it was kind of eye-opening to see like We've seen, uh, yeah, we've seen once someone go up and pick up a baby uh, seal pup and throw it into the ocean, take it out of the ocean, and then they were taking a selfie with it. And it was kind of, I, I ran down there real quick to, to kind of give them a talking to. And just kind of general overall uh, wildlife etiquette was just missing. It's uh, as though a lot of people maybe just didn't know when they were coming to the island to just leave the seals alone. They would oftentimes go running after the seals, taking their videos and stuff like that. Yeah, that person um, who you who you confronted, Brock, about the, the baby seal, I mean, what was that conversation like? Did they get what they had just done? Yeah, I mean, I would have had maybe a little bit more sympathy for them when I just seen them throwing the seal pup in the ocean, thinking maybe they thought they were doing it a favour. But then when I seen them taking a selfie with it, that's when I kind of, you know, <laughs> that's when I wasn't too happy with them and, I don't know if it really clicked into what they had done because they inadvertently kill that seal pup, right? Because the mm-hmm. the mum uh, will then ab- abandon it. So, so I don't think they really understood what they were doing. And it's just a yeah, it's, it's a matter of uh, general wildlife etiquette and just mm-hmm. maybe knowledge as well when because they get to the island. Th- that seal pup, like seal pups, don't swim, do they? Initially, after they're born, for the first couple of weeks. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So essentially, in throwing that seal pup into the, the sea, the seal pup was being thrown to its death. Yeah, to a certain extent, yeah. Because <clears throat> uh, yeah, seals are mammals. They, they actually live on land. They spend a lot of time in water, but the majority of their lives are on the, on the land. So, so it's, uh, there, there was actually a really good research paper that was just written, a PhD paper that was uh, written about the importance of that uh, beach and the seal colony there. 
So it's a, it's a good read and it's, it's really eye-opening, I think, for people. And you also saw that people want to camp on the beach and, and the seals are, are disruptive to the campers. Is that right? Yeah, because when people are camping on the beach, the seals are, are scared to come back up on shore. Um, and it, it's kind of just... Yeah, it's it's just knowledge as well. But it, again, like I was saying, it's just that etiquette of wildlife. Like, there's no need to go and scaring off the seals. I use the example from from Canada. We have an overpopulation of deer in some of our cities, but that doesn't mean that I would ever go and in, inadvertently run up and scare the the deers away. You know, it's just this general knowledge. They just live there. That's their homes. The seals. That's their home. You know. So. Yeah. Just, just leave them alone. <laughs> it's pretty simple. And, and you've written to the Office of Public Works about this and another matter which we'll come to in a moment. But on the seals, you're calling for people to be made aware of their responsibilities when they visit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's all it is. It's just, I think, just some proper signage out there, knowing to keep, you know, 100 metres distance away from them. Uh, that's one of the most beautiful things on the island. I think the majority of people that we met over the six months go there and they want to observe the seals. So when you get one one ignorant person a day that goes and scares them all away, it ruins it for the other 200 people that come come on the island and want to see the seals. And, you know, you have the, the tour boats coming by as well that also want to see all the seals. So if everybody can just work together, then, you you know, you you preserve that beautiful, wild part of nature that is, that's, that's always there. And I think uh, <clears throat> if it just continuously gets disrupted, it, it might be, you know, one of the last uh, kind of beautiful things on that island that, yeah. that will be... Uh, no longer there, unfortunately. Well, Brock, let's talk about the other problem, the, the lack of public toilets. And you're quoted today as saying that you see tourists going to the toilet in the ruins of Peg Sayre's former home. I mean, people will scarcely believe that this is happening, but you saw it with your own eyes. Yeah, exactly. And that, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Like, a lot of people might, that would comment on these, like, see what we say and think, oh, there's no way. But a lot of those people that would see, say stuff like that, they, they never lived there on the island. You know, we were there for half a year we've seen the extent of it. There's just no public toilets for them to use. So yeah, oftentimes there's, we, we don't really blame them. There's nowhere else for them to go. Like they just go in the ruins for, for shelter so they can get some privacy to, to go to the toilet. So it, it is what it is. I think uh, they just, yeah, once they get some public toilets out there, it'd be a, a lot better scenario. Yeah. Um, was, you it don't part, wanna... was it part of your job to clean that up? No, it wasn't part of our job. That's the extent of our job was to take care of the uh, the guest cottages and, and welcome those guests to the island. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we did we went out of our way because there's also no no garbages as well on the island. No no where to put people to put their garbage. Majority of people were were really respectful with that, but you know we would go around and pick up uh, garbage as well. But I definitely wasn't going and uh, cleaning poop out of the ruins. Brooke Montgomery there. Then Claire spoke to Billy O'Connor, who owns property on the island. So Billy, you're one of six or seven private landowners who who still have property on the island, but it's all managed by the OPW since 2006. Do people know before they go there that there are no toilet facilities? Hi, Claire. Um, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, there there would be some bit of public campaign and, and information there to say that there isn't actually toilet facilities there. Um, but obviously, like people, um, some people wouldn't do the research and um, they would get caught. Um, and I don't think they're like actively using the toilet, um, intentionally using the village as a toilet. It's just, you know, if they're caught short on the island, mm-hmm. they, they have no other choice, I suppose. And is it possible to put toilets on the island? Um, I, yeah, I think they're, you know, I definitely think it's possible to kind of open lines of communication and, you know, make some sort of a plan um, without completely, you know, obviously we don't, you know, develop, we don't want to develop the island too much or I don't think, but we don't know what really direction the island is going in. And um, 
I, I would imagine it'd be very easy to, to accommodate public toilets out there. Okay, and it's not the first time the question has been asked of the OPW, is it? No, it's it's kind of ongoing. Um, it's difficult to get an answer. And I suppose it is a difficult job for the OPW as well. Um, and they do do great work as well. Aside, you know, it's not all negative. They do do brilliant work and they have guides out there and they have... Um, and they're doing great work with the village, but maybe they kind of sometimes overlook the, the smaller points that Brock made there, and that's just maybe signage to do with the seals, and it would be like, you know, toilet facilities and maybe just even some type of um, rubbish management plan. Okay. Um, it's just the smaller things that seem to be a bit overlooked. Billy O'Connor from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the live line, musician John Ralph called Joe about a precious antique banjo taken from his gig the night before. I was doing a gig last night in uh, Bachelors Walk. It's at the Arlington Hotel there. It's a Norwich uh, Celtic Dublin, night. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I finished the show, finished about half past ten. Um, I normally get the 11 o'clock bus home, so I went in for a quick point next door, pub next door. And long story short, it was behind me for, the banjo was behind me on the floor for two minutes or five minutes or whatever, and I was taken. Guy walked out with it. Um, and what pub were you in? Uh, O'Connell's, small O'Connell's. I go in there for a um, little small place there beside the Arrington. Um, and so basically that's it. I'm devastated. Uh, the banjo is over 100 years old. Well, it's actually 100 years old. I, I have it for 20, 21 years. Um, they're very rare. Uh, so. Uh, and what type of banjo was it? What made? It's, it's, a, it's an Epiphone. Epiphone. Uh, yeah, yeah, terrible. And, and like, was there CCTV or is anyone? They have, they actually have CCTV there and they were looking at it there last night. It didn't seem to be great, but um, the guards were on to me about an hour ago and they're actually going down to see can they improve it or work on it in any way and the word is out among them to have a look at it. And was it, do you reckon it was, could you see this, the person, was it a lone person or two? A lone them? person, lone, one guy, yeah. Um, and do you think he or what, she would like it? Forgive me. Is a banjo yeah. case different from a guitar case, different from a mandolin case? It is, is it? It is, yeah, but, completely, but, yeah, yeah. But do yeah, you think, is, yeah. did, did think he, was he targeting the 100-year-old banjo, which is obviously irreplaceable? No, you, you, no, he wouldn't. I think it was uh, it was a matter of chance. An opportunist, OK. Yeah, what opportunist. Time, this was at what time last night? I'd say quarter to 11 would be bang on the time that he took it. We looked okay. at the CCTV there. So where you know? do you go with a banjo at a quarter to 11? At night? <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I can't understand, you know. Well, it's not like, uh, you, you've, God forbid, you rob a mobile phone and you go, within 10 minutes, you'll probably have a souls. But, yeah, like, yeah, where, yeah. where do you hawk a banjo? Yeah, I, I, so we don't know. We, we, don't, we, we don't know where he's... Uh, some, some chap on the streets or living locally or we, we haven't got a clue could have jumped into a taxi but you're begging him to bring it back I'm begging yeah yeah or if you know all I want is the banjo back basically uh, if and anyone hand, knows hand it in somewhere hand it in to a hand it in yeah a guard Street. station or a presbytery yeah. or any, anywhere just a- anywhere at all yeah yeah uh, give it to a taxi th- give it to a taxi driver and say would you absolutely yeah, yeah yeah so that's where we are John devastated Jennifer, Jennifer is your daughter. Yeah, well, Jennifer was auntie in the first place. You're, you're, up, the, you're up the walls as well. I am, I, and I know my, my dad sounds quite buoyant there, but I can assure you um, we're all involved because um, my dad is absolutely lost um, without his banjo. The two of them are inseparable, so we're just asking if someone comes across it, it happens to come, you know, by them 
that they either return it to the pub, give it to a, a guard station, or even let your show, Joe, know. Um, like, we just want it back safely. We're not, I suppose, interested yeah. in retribution or anything. It's just, he's, it's his lifeblood, so... We're, we're desperate to get it back. And were there, John, were there any identifiable stickers on the on the on the guitar, the banjo case? The banjo. No, it was it was actually um, it, it wasn't actually a case. It was more of a black bag that surrounds the banjo. Oh, I'll okay. carry it over my shoulder, you know. But um, but the make of the banjo is very important. In Epiphone, they're they're very very rare, very rare banjo. And uh, it's the name on the. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's printed on it. Yeah. And yeah, what's so, what's so good about this banjo? Don't say the player. What's so <laughs> what's so good about the banjo? I know the player is brilliant. <laughs> Very debatable, Joe. <laughs> oh, no, I say you're brilliant. Uh, I, I, look, I have a twenty-one years. This special, it's just a special instrument for me. Yeah. Um, and I actually introduce. I send it. I send it to your researcher Lisa earlier on. Um, I introduce her as Epi, my hundred. Year old friend to, the, yeah. to our audiences every night. So, uh, so where where was the the, the banjo originally made a hundred years ago? It was made in America, I think New yeah. York. Uh, Epiphone were. A, and a where? Comp- who did you buy it off? I, I are, uh, It was from a company called Bernunzio in New from New York. I got it. Uh, oh. I ordered on, well on, online at the time, um, and got it delivered here. Uh, so that's and I have it ever since. And is it is it as the Mastercard I said? Is it is it priceless? For me, it is, yeah. yeah. John Ralph and his daughter Jennifer from the Live Line with Joe Duffy. And on the Ray Darcy show, Brenda Donahue was sitting in and she was talking to Tallow born chef Anna Hall. Anna Hall is one of Ireland's leading culinary talents. She's now opening her first restaurant in Ireland. Anna Hall at the Conrad, which aims to take old Irish recipes, making them a bit more elegant, but still with the heartbeat of Ireland. She's no stranger to the show, but it's her first time in the studio. Now she's back home in Ireland and she's a new spot as a guest judge on MasterChef The Professionals. That's tough. Do uh, tear on BBC this November. We've so much to talk about. Um, Anna, you are so welcome. I'm delighted to meet you. I'm so glad that nobody can see me because I'm beside myself with excitement. I just keep opening my mouth. <laughs> keep doing that. Oh my, everyone should see you. You look amazing uh, stop, in your beautiful green stop, jumper and pearls today. <laughs> well, tell me first of all, about the whole idea. Tell me first of all, sorry, about coming home and opening a restaurant back in Ireland. It's such a magic feeling. Like I've looked at a few different options of trying to do this and it never felt right. And then when I sat down with the Conrad, I just felt like this, we were on the same page. Mm. And to come home, like when I left Dublin, I left as a junior chef who was craving knowledge of food and I thought it was all about France. What age were you? Oh, I must have been about 20. And, you know, I thought it was all about like French cooking and the French way. And sure, now I'm coming home to Dublin and I believe it's the Irish food and the Irish way that I think should be kind of shown... You know, perhaps other other cuisines a thing or two in the in the long run. I think naturally, Irish people have got uh, generosity and service in in their soul, and the idea of introducing a bit of discipline and a bit of skills to that it should mean that it's the warmest but the most efficient type of service you could have. Well, I can understand, and I, I'm just thinking of my mother. Um, if you go into your, her house, you know, to the house, I mean, it's not necessarily. The quality of food, but certainly the quantity. You will, you know, the plate will just be constantly loaded up and that. So I'm thinking back to you growing up in Tala. 
Um, was the love of Irish food instilled there? And what kind of food were we talk- are we talking about? I was raised on the food that my, my mother and my father were raised on themselves. Yeah. So my it grandmother... It is the National Day of the Potato today. Yeah. You know that. <laughs> oh, is it? I didn't <laughs> know that. Oh, God. All our stars are aligned. Yeah, um, uh, yeah so my mum was taught by her mother and her mother taught her mother. You know what I mean? Like taught it's, what? Like? You know, uh, how to cook, how to... what what you How you put things together. So when I was a kid, we had like uh, oak-crusted fish and we had stews and culcannon and we had homemade jams and all homemade stocks and homemade biscuits and breads and scones. All of it learned... For, my mother learned from her mother. So she taught all of us those basics. But she also taught us how to like shop in a supermarket. So how did you look for um, vegetables that were fresh or when you were buying your milk or your meat? All of those really important life skills I had when I was a commie chef. The, the kind of thing I spend years teaching a chef now, a young chef now how to do. So like my mother taught me how to listen to the ingredients that are in front of you. And I'm so grateful for that. But because of those recipes, I'm able to um, introduce them to the kind of more modern techniques that I learned in fine dining restaurants so that those dishes are lighter and more elegant, but still, you know, they come from give the me, right place. Give me a take on one of them so I can get a sense of it. You know, that might have come from, yeah. you know, the kitchen that we might consider a little bit stodgy or, you know, how are you going to make it? I'm ready, I'm ready. Are you I'm ready? ready? I'm ready, I'm ready. ready. I'm ready. So I do. Why don't you bring it in? I do. Like, oh, but on. you know what? I should have brought it in. I'm so like sorry. Like even a cake. I know. Come on. How rude of me. <laughs> I rude. must apologise. <laughs> no, uh, oat crusted hake with a, a smoked mackerel and mussel chowder is a perfect example of the dish. So I create this delicious kind of oat uh, kind of crust, which I cook, uh, takes a little while to make, put it on top of the fish, bake it, and then I put a special kind of vinaigrette that takes a few days to make um, instead of lemon juice on top. And then I take the classic ingredients that you'd have from like a chowder, but without the flour and stuff. And I puree it so it's silky, like a velouté, delicious sauce. And I serve it with what I think is what an Irish mash is. So it's not wet and creamy like French. It's kind of buttery and firm like Irish mash. And it's just delicious. When I was a kid, my mother used to put oat crust on uh, mackerel fillets. Mm. And that's essentially where this idea came from. Wow. And we were, even now when I go home, sure, Dad, if he asks me once, he's asked me a thousand times for a chowder recipe. You know, we loved food like that. We had a lot of seafood in our house. We don't, Dad, even now, would still head up to Hoth with my son, my little 13-month son. Uh, I'll just bring him up to Hoth. Dad, he's not even... Oh, go on then. <laughs> the fresh air will do yeah. good. The fresh air. <laughs> go buy fish. <laughs> Anna Hall talking to Brenda Donoghue. And on Today with Claire Byrne, community service. Brian O'Connell was looking at 40 years of this alternative to prison time. Community service orders here just over 40 years introduced in Ireland in 1984 as part of the Gen- uh, Criminal Justice Community Service Act. And the idea back then was that they could be enforced after imprisonment had been considered. But then this was changed in 2011. So they can be considered now as an alternative to short term prison sentences of under 12 months. The data is quite interesting. It tells us 44% of people who get a short prison sentence reoffend within a year. But if you look at community service, just 
29% of those reoffend. So it's also used in the form of community return. So where, for example, a prisoner may be able to cut short a sentence and instead then they would participate in community services towards the end of that sentence and then it's all managed by the probation service. So yesterday then you began your day in the probation service offices in Limerick City. With the high walls of Limerick Prison shadowing the building almost so prison is all around you, not hard to avoid it. But I met a group of men all doing community service. They began with a cup of tea and a chat and then it was on to a bus and the first stop of the day was the Simon Community Warehouse. On the bus was a man who has to do 40 hours because of an unpaid fine stretching back some years. So let me take you through a day in the life of people on community service beginning as they got on that bus. I suppose you could say that we're going on a day trip and we're, we're, taking, we're taking Brian up as far as showing him, showing him the, the ins and outs of the community service. Um, I mean, if areas between uh, lining out football pitches, uh, it could be groundwork, um, you know, outside painting. Because a lot of people would hear about community service but don't really know what it is. Yeah, again, it's one of those things, like, you know, in society, you just kind of, um, I suppose, swept under the carpet, if you like, you know, or pushed to the side. Like, it's, um, and I'm not just speaking on behalf of the community service officers that are sent out, like the likes of, we'll say, like Joe and Peter and Arkes here in Limerick. But the lads, like, I mean, there's some lads there and they're finishing off a thousand hours. I mean, it's a big thing, like, you know, I mean, a thousand hours is a big ask. Like, I mean, there's a reason why these lads, like myself, end up in community service in the first place. I mean, most, the majority of us would have difficult upbringings. A lot of these lads like that I would have met down through the, you know, between prison, between jail and community services, they have stories, like, you know, untold stories. You know, the likes of Joe and Peter, like, you know, the community service officers, in fairness to them, like, it gives them a bit of credit. It gives them a bit of, you know, an incentive to get back out there into the world, like, and, and see what things are, are, are really all about. Like, you know, it's not, it's not all doom and gloom, like, you know, and it could be going home to a lot of doom and gloom, but, like, the lads kind of give you a good kind of a, an outlook of what it could be like if you know get up in the morning giving you know a reason to leave the house, throw on the, the, the steel toe cap boots and, and, and get out there and, and start doing a bit of you know a, a bit of a bit of grafting and, and not but get but get credit for it. The lads said you know a bit of praise for it, like you know and and, and feel like you know it's not just community service for the sake of it. Not just it, it there's a psychological aspect to community service as well. Like then Brian headed on the bus to the Simon Warehouse in Limerick. Well, they didn't stop. They packed about 200 food bags when I was there and the operations manager told me she really relies on this work every week. Now, they go to sports facilities, churches, public spaces, graveyards, parks, green areas, and it is cost effective if you look at it. For example, the annual estimated cost of keeping a person in prison is just over €80,000, while the latest figures estimate the annual cost of probation supervision in the community is just uh, short of €6,000. So then after the bag pack, continuing our day, back on the bus, Claire, and then it was into the Southside Boxing Club. I'd actually met someone who was doing community service at the end of a prison sentence and he was saying the big advantage is being able to go home in the evening. Uh, they were cleaning down bags and helping set up the club for a tournament. Some were sweeping the ring and generally helping to maintain the property. So they do a few hours there and the day ends then around 4 or 5pm when it's back on the bus, back into the city centre. Now that first man I spoke to, he gave me his thoughts at the end of the day. So tell us we're just finished. Yeah, it was actually grand. I mean, I, I'm doing community service in lieu of, uh, of, of a fine, actually, uh, outstanding fines that I was completely oblivious to, uh, completely unaware of, actually, uh, back back in 2015. Um, as far as I'm aware, uh, bought tyres, you know, attacks in Newcastle West in 2015, but uh, which was a bit of a shocker to me, like a bit of a, threw a bit of a spanner into the rocks, like, because I haven't seen as I haven't come to the, the attention of the law enforcement or, or the, 
the judicial system in, in, in six years. I, I suppose you could say that I'm here to, to, in lieu of a three-month sentence or, or, or an unpaid fine. That's what for you, three months in prison. Yeah, I yeah. think that was the other, that was the alternative. So, and I suppose I have a little bit of history with the, with the services or whatever from I was a bit of a ball boy growing up. Like, but um, I've since turned a new leaf. Like, but the yeah, advantage it, for you obviously is that you get to go home in the evening to your family now. Yeah, as opposed to in comparison yeah. to most, would say like inmates that, that don't have the same opportunity or don't, you know. Yeah, I get to go home to family, and again, look, it's just a couple of days, just to clear an unpaid fine from, from, yeah. you know. But yeah. Do you tell people you're doing community service? Um, I'd be embarrassed in one sense. Yeah, I'd be embarrassed in one sense. But I mean, why? I suppose there's a. I've, I haven't come to the attention of the of the guards in six years. Mm-hmm. Right. So going back to prison. But for going you back to prison, would have been you know, a big setback. A big setback, massive. Like I would have been, you know, and I might not have been right the second time round after I finished prison. I might have said, you know what, just gave up on life completely because I'm in my forties now, early forties. You know, today, no, I'm actually, you know, I'm, 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 it's, it's such a relief, like you know, such a I feel such a weight off the shoulders because. You know, I, had, I now have the actual official clean slate that I've been waiting for since I was a teenager, you know. And I can go far now and, and, and live, you know, and do all the things that I wanted to do without these pending things hanging over me, you know. So, you know, but it, it, there is a, a sense of embarrassment about it, as in I, I wouldn't be in a hurry to tell my family about it. And Claire asked Brian about the probation staff that work with the people on community service. Peter and Joe were the supervisors in charge of the community service and both of them had a lot of experience dealing with different types of issues. Now, once the lines of communication are kept open, if someone is late, for example, and they text and say, I'm on the way and people are doing the work they're meant to do, they're quite happy. Peter Gardner, 36 years working in this area, and he told me about the work and some of what has changed in that time, Claire, particularly the impact, as he sees it, that drugs have had I asked him first, so if community service works. For me it does, for the uh, people that's on it, I feel it does work. Most of them appreciate the chance they get. When they come out to me, uh, they're not coming out to be punished. Punishment is coming out to me, but I'm not here to punish them. I'm here to get them through it. How do you handle the fellow who won't get out of bed? You get guys coming in late, you know. You don't know, have the drink problems. and They're just not used to getting out of bed. A lot that's not working, not used to getting up at nine o'clock in the morning. If they were there, I am. One of the things we used to look out for uh, when I started would be um, people might be sniffing petrol, be sniffing glue. But over the years, uh, the drugs are after taking a, an awful hold, and you see, you see faces devastated. Heavy drugs is after taking their toll. You can see uh, lads who you had a few years before. And they're only a shadow of themselves. And sell it to me then, why should someone be able to cut their sentence short and do community service? Sure, if they're serving their sentence, all they're doing is filling the jails. We have ten sites in Limerick. If all community service people were serving their time in jail, there'd be no work done. There's a need for it in the there community, is a call. you feel. Any sites that yeah. we're on... There's no fast people working in any sites. But is it sometimes, do people think, well, I'll just do, I won't pay the fine because sure, I can do 40 hours and that's that. Most of the largest with us are unemployed anyway. So they don't have the means to pay the fine. They haven't the money. The boys coming in with us, they're not even living week to week. They're collecting their dole on a Tuesday. So I think that they don't want to pay the fines. I'd say most of them haven't the money to pay the fines. Once they come to me, they're after coming through the... The judicial system, they've gone into the probation service. If they come in out of their head, you try to get them home safe. You, you, you're like, I'm not going to be able to stick baiting them down, and I won't make them lose face. 
That's very important. I never make a man lose face in front of other people. You're giving them their dignity. Yes, yeah, yeah. Brian O'Connell's report from today with Claire Byrne. So we're back to the Ryan Tuberty show in the morning and Lucy Worsley's book, Agatha Christie, A Very Elusive Woman. And Lucy spoke about that event in 1926 when Agatha mysteriously disappeared. Friday the 3rd of December, mm-hmm. 1926. She disappeared from home. She left her little daughter asleep in bed. And the next morning, her slightly damaged car was found poised over the edge of a quarry. It had so nearly crashed down and and she wasn't there. And for the next 11 days after that, the press speculated and the police searched for her dead body. Had she committed suicide? Had she been killed by her cheating husband? And people came out to help look for her as well. And then 11 days later, she turned up living under a false name in a hotel in Harrogate, so Mm. 200 miles away. And... All of the journalists who'd been covering this huge hunt for her, you get the sense they were slightly disappointed Mm. that she wasn't dead. And they wanted answers. They wanted to know what had been going on. Yes. And and you just, actually, that that series of uh, chapters in your book reads like a standalone. Uh, book in itself because it is a curious it's such a mystery and and uh, you bring us along on that road you've got the particularly the police officer who's rather theatrical in his approach to it always kind of seemed to be enjoying the hubbub and then they find her she's we won't get into all the details because we don't have time but that's but that's all there in the book and it's fascinating and there's almost a kind of a, where is she poor Agatha where's the body and then she's alive and it reaction goes yeah, but just a second. So what was that? What was all that about? What was all that she about? Think, I think she lost the room a little bit, didn't she? Oh, she absolutely did. The press had built her up yeah. and now they tore her down. Did they really go for her? Yeah, they did. Okay. They did. And this is often described in terms of a mystery. We've just done it now, haven't we? Yeah. And yet this is the thing. It's not a mystery at all. Yeah. It's often, often said that she never spoke again about this whole notorious incident, which isn't true. Yes. 18 months later, she was caught up in a divorce case, a custody battle. She wanted her daughter. She felt that she had to give her side of the story and she gave an interview to the Daily Mail, so a newspaper that's read by millions of people. And she explained what had happened. But the thing is, the thing is that people didn't want to listen. They didn't want to hear her side of the story because it was a story that was hard to hear. It was an uncomfortable story. And her story was that on the night she had disappeared, she'd been experiencing suicidal thoughts. The whole thing had been an episode of mental illness. Yeah. And at that time in the British psyche, I suppose, after war and, and everything, people just wanted all the bad things to go away. Is there, is there an That's sense very of, true. That's very true. It was in the context of this whole discussion that had recently taken place about yeah. shell shock, yes. which... Um, uh, was was a reaction that some people had had to the trauma of war during yeah. the conflict. And they, like Agatha, had gone into this um, fugue state is technically what happened to her during the 11 days. She she wasn't acting in accordance with the... She, she, she had forgotten who she was, yeah. basically. And fugue state is something that doctors knew about. But it was a state that was characterised during World War One in particular by 
disbelief. People thought that these were shirkers. They were men who wanted to get out of going back to the front. So when, when Agatha said, look, I had this fugue state, I lost my memory. A lot of people said, nah, don't believe it. You were just trying to get publicity for your books. Or, and this is a really strong counter narrative that developed, you were trying to frame your cheating husband for having murdered you weren't you? Got everyone talking. Um, I love the fact that Conan Doyle, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle got involved as well uh, with his, uh, he, he loved a good psychic uh, meeting, didn't he? I mean, it, it, this was part of his belief system. Yes. He We're was, taking a sidestep uh, to Baker Street for a second, but but just for the moment. He was really interested in the supernatural, which was a big yeah. feature of life in the 1920s because so many people had lost someone in World That's War One. Okay, yes. They wanted to be in touch with these people. Yeah. Again, and you will believe anything if you're that desperate, won't you? You will. Um, and you have then this. Uh, I love this this idea of this generation of women who had no men in their lives because they were either killed or they, and then there was no one to date, there was no one to marry. There was mm. um, what were they called? You called there's an expression. They're sometimes for, called the surplus women. The surplus. I thought what, a, what an expression. It, I know. Straight out I of the, <laughs> yeah. the yeah the Tory cabinet room somewhere at, yeah. of, of its time, but the surplus women. Probably led us in some ways to Miss Marple. Do you, you, I think you made that connection as much yes, as uh, yes. because. Miss, well, talk to me about Miss, that. Miss Marple was a little older than this generation yes. who are supposed to have lost their potential husbands in the war. But it did mean that after the war, there was more prominence given to spinsters, to unmarried women in society, I think. And that's why in 1930, when Agatha had got better, mm. right? She'd mm. come back, she'd had psychiatric treatment. And her experience of that psychiatric treatment, I think, enriched her work from this point. And in 1930, she wrote a book that I'm particularly fond of called The Murder at the Vicarage. Yes. And it's the first appearance in a full-length novel of my favourite Christie character, who is... Miss Marple. Okay, you prefer Marple to Poirot. Oh, yes. Okay, so Poirot was a Belgian refugee. He uh, was. And there were a lot of Belgian refugees in Torquay uh, where Agatha Christie was living. And that's where that came from, hence the peculiarity of him. Is there anything else we should know about Poirot that, that, yes. that Agatha Christie is trying to tell us? Yes, 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 yes. A lot of people would think of Agatha Christie as a kind of conservative writer, somebody perhaps part of the establishment. Yeah. But she does give a voice to... Oddballs. Good. People who are outside the mainstream. <laughs> People like Poirot, who is a war refugee. Uh, but more frivolously, he has a ridiculous moustache. Mm. He has a foreign accent. And he's not been to public school. And yet, he's the nerd's nerd, isn't he? he? Everybody really is. underestimates him and he gets the job done. And Ryan asked Lucy about the bad press around Agatha Christie. I think it's amazing in your book, Lucy, that you came across a lot of opinions in the in the biographies of Agatha Christie that you felt were kind of out of step, out of time and maybe out of line? Well, in 1926, journalists developed this whole narrative that she was a bad person, that she had tricked the world, made fools of everybody. And I feel that historians and biographers have been misled by that. They've repeated what is fake news. I think, personally, that when a woman says, look, I was experiencing mental illness, mm -hmm. we should pay her the compliment of believing her. I think that she very bravely spoke out about something that was difficult to speak out about in 1926 and nobody listened and I feel sorry about that. That's why despite her fame and her success and her celebrity and her achievements, I still have this sense of unfinished business.
about her life. Yeah, I think she would have been pretty grateful to you for this book in some ways. Um, well, would she now? Because would she ever have wanted me to reveal her secrets in this way? I'm not sure. Uh, maybe in 2022 she might have understood why you do such a thing. But I hope so. In, I hope in, so. In 1922 she might have been less forgiving. But yeah. I think uh, times yeah. change, attitudes change. And yeah. um, I think it probably was, it, it's a win for her. Um, are you still chief curator of historical royal palaces? That is correct. Uh, what a job title and what a job. I mean, you talk about the, the nerds and you're definitely the, the uh, regal in that sense um, and you look after various royal buildings um, and obviously you had the passing of Queen Elizabeth recently I mean it was extraordinary uh, uh, vista really to, to, to watch and see can you tell me your thoughts on, on that? Certainly, certainly Historic Royal Palaces looks after the unoccupied royal palaces so we're a sort of a bit of a distance from the actual royal household but um the crown jewels were obviously coming and going from the Tower of London because they were going to be in use. A lot of people say when they come to the um, jewel house at the Tower of London, are these the real jewels? Mm. Well, that that week they, they weren't there. They, they were being used. So they are the real they jewels. Are. What they a are. job. Because you're, as I understand, your, your dad told you that studying history what might not be the most productive line to, of a career to follow. Is that correct? <sighs> Well, he said some words that have become famous in our family. He said, if you do a history degree, my girl, you'll be cleaning toilets for a living. <laughs> he does not like to be reminded of this now. But also, you know, he was he was wrong about that. We need people who are going to clean toilets for a living. It's important work. But also he was right about it because I do spend a lot of my time at Hampton Court telling people about how they went to the loo in Tudor times and that sort of thing. It's OK with me if people want to come to the palace to learn about, you know, the nitty-gritty, dirty yeah. detail of daily life. Lucy Worsley from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on the live line, highlighting the plight of endometriosis sufferers, Joe was talking to Victoria about her early diagnosis. You, you, um, were, you were diagnosed at 21. Yeah, officially diagnosed at 21. Um, unofficially at 16, because when you're young, they won't do the laparoscopy, so you have to kind of wait okay. and put up with the symptoms for, for a number of years. So. And the symptoms were, Victoria? Um, so I have debilitating pain daily. I yeah. Some days I can't walk, um, nausea, constantly vomiting. Um, sometimes I, I, the, you feel so warm, like your skin is on fire and you have to lie down on, on yeah. a cold floor for ages. But I... Oh I have distinct recollection of being in work and being on my my hands and knees trying to, you know, take a call in in previous jobs and things because you know you have to work. It's not recognised as a disability. So and Victoria, you have did, to put through it. Do you mean literally on your hands and knees? Literally on my hands and knees. Yeah. In work. Yeah, in work. Yeah, or there'd be days where you know you would you you know you have to get there. So you put your pain in your legs might be two extremes you might have to like literally manually lift your legs while driving which is not advisable but you have to get from A to B and you have to be able to pull through it but most recently um, my pain got to um, a different level where it's I, I know myself because I know my body that it's no longer uh, pelvic it's gone further up so it causes chest pains like a heart attack like I've been in an ambulance four times now with what looked to be a heart attack but it, it wasn't thankfully um, and I can't get anyone to kind of investigate there because when you're talking about enemy shows growing on the diaphragm or anywhere further it is quite difficult to get at that level of diagnosis uh, in this country anyway. And what about pain relief? Pain relief um, 
so far haven't gotten much in the way of pain relief. Um, sometimes I could have to go into the doctor and get the injection um, directly into my to my bottom or my stomach mm. just to get the pain to be under control for a couple of hours. But um, the most recent time I got that, I was literally convulsing with pain. It's 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 oh it's literally like labour. I have I have luckily have two children two miscarriages, two children, and um, it's the exact same as labour pain. It, there's no difference. Yeah, and how have you been in the last, in the recent past? So I'm still in the exact, so I'm 29 now. And um, I, I'm sorry, I'm getting a bit choked yeah, up. Yeah. I, I, I genuinely believe that I've lost my, my 20s to this. I, I have to cancel plans with friends. I don't get to do yeah. what I want to do. I don't get to go to a restaurant in case something that I eat exacerbates it. There's not enough study or research done in it, so no one really knows what's aggravating it. But you've been, you've been diagnosed with endometriosis. Yeah, no, the diagnosis is step one. Um, the treatment. Is, is another thing there is because there really isn't a level of treatment yet. I've had two laparoscopies so far. Mm-hmm. I'm on a waiting list now, I think about 14 months with a, a doctor who is, is exceptional. He's probably one of the rare few in the country that actually have good knowledge on it. Okay. Um, but his waiting lists are huge because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I need another laparoscopy. And again, I'm, I'm 29 and it's looking like it's going to go towards a partial or full hysterectomy, which is in you say, difficult it's, to deal it's, with. It's a disability. Yeah, but it's not recognised here. It is recognised in the UK, but but not here. You say I will need a walking stick soon. Twenty nine years of age. Yeah, like even if I'm out walking with my kids, I'm I don't like to go without my partner in case I fall to the floor with pain. I don't want to be in that position. And you fall to the floor with pain. You will you will literally collapse. It's the exact same as labour. So you kind of have to imagine that level of pain. And if you imagine a woman in labour, she has someone holding her up while she's having those pains yeah, or she's yeah, sitting yeah. down. And she knows... Women, she, women with endometriosis, we're yeah. in work with that. That's Victoria on the live line with Joe Duffy. And as the change of season and the chill in the air are a bit more noticeable, gardeners Dermot Gavin and Mary Staunton were talking to Claire Byrne in the morning. So once the wind settles, what what are the sort of things you would be doing around this time of year? Picking up the leaves, I think. <laughs> it's it, You know, you're going to get a huge amount of debris once there's um, wind and the leaves tend to come down. I mean, they're already coming down quite a lot. So just get them off the, the, the ground and use them as, um, you know, use them as a mulch. Put them into a compost bay or somewhere that you can just tuck them away and they will break down and, and uh, you know the stuff that they produce is just gorgeous oh Beautiful yeah leaf mulch. leaf, uh, leaf mold is mold, the most yeah. it takes a long time if you're just using leaves yeah. uh, to break down it can be 18 months but uh, the crumbly material you get from it is absolutely wonderful uh, the important place I suppose to take them away from in particular is the lawn if you like your nice pristine lawns uh, you will have trouble underneath but don't take them away from everywhere because again they can be a great yeah. habitat in some places Are you saying that you should put something through them to speed up the process? You I can, yeah Yeah, you can yeah. pee on them No, oh my god <laughs> Did you sort of say that? I'm not listening. You did. Oh, did. you can put in grass clippings. It's an accelerator. Clippings. It's yeah, a magic yeah, accelerator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can put Maybe in, you, you could don't encourage want to do that. the dog to yeah, do that exactly, for you. Yeah. Exactly. But you can put in your um, grass clippings and that's that'll heat up that 
that leaf mould compost and it'll break down uh, much quicker. So it could be 10, 10 months then. Uh, or you could throw in kind of handfuls or uh, uh, a couple of shovelfuls of soil. Garden soil will yeah. have all the yeah. uh, little microorganisms in it. Is that much We prefer that. Accepted? We prefer that <laughs> suggestion, yeah. What about um, spring bulbs? It seems strange to think about them at this time no, of the year, but we gorgeous. should be, right? Yeah, totally. Um, you can get your daffodils in now. You have a good bit of time still to get your tulips. But the biggest, and you can do them in big pots, so you can layer them up. I mean, I think last year you did the bulb lasagna yes. um, on, on air and you left the place really <laughs> filthy. <laughs> so you can do a bulb lasagna where you put in your tulips um, at the, the bottom of the pot, obviously put in a bit of grit and a bit of compost. Uh, tulips then layer in the daffodils uh, next and then you can do your little um, crocus and snowdrops. And so you end up having, uh, you know, things that are flowering from maybe January, February, March, April. And do you plant them and ignore them? Can you just pretty like, much not pay any for, attention to them? For most of the winter, yeah, you, yeah. you pretty much <laughs> can. You don't let it dry out. That's the most important <laughs> thing. You don't leave them in a place where they won't get uh, moisture. Yeah. But they can be ignored. If you really want to be inspired, there's an amazing guy in Denmark called Klaus Dalby. Yeah. C-L-A-U-S-D-A-L-B-Y. And he's on Instagram. And his collections of bulbs, he layers them mm. uh, outside his house uh, in kind of provincial cont- yeah. Denmark. And it's astonishing. What he, do, mm-hmm. what he does okay. so that's a great place for aspiration So what else should we be growing or what, what else works at this time of year? One <laughs> thing that's kind of productive you're talking about the bulbs for next year but saving seed and I, I brought in uh, some examples of plants would you know what that is? Not really for 10 points Go on te- now, Claire. Well, Not I'd, really I'd there's no point points. in testing me I don't know the answer <laughs> You do it Looks like a bit of a thistle or something No, no it's a poppy head <laughs> <Okay>. so, <laughs> Thanks uh, Look at that. <laughs> So I have lots of, of I might as well from, be looking at thistles from, from my garden. So if you just open the centre of, of that, yeah. you'll find All over the place. that Thousands there's loads of, of little seeds. Oh, so right. collecting seeds. We're used seeds. to cleaning up after German's <laughs> been here. Uh, collecting seeds uh, once they're ready for harvesting is uh, a fantastic thing. Did there's nothing in my one. Actually, no, mine is good. Typical, isn't it? It's actually calcified. Like there's yeah. absolutely nothing. I think they well, fell out on the way. for you. Look at that with all the seeds oh, yeah. on, on the plant. Okay. So any of these, uh, m- many of these kind of annuals, perennials, you can collect seed from. The sturgeon is a very easy one yeah. at, at this time of the year. Collect them, label them, put them in an envelope, keep them dry uh, and next spring uh, out in the garden. Oh, so, so we're, not, we're not doing anything with them. We're just keeping just, them. You well, keep them, no, yeah. you're, you're doing something very saving important them. with them. Saving them. Uh, <laughs> and if you don't save them, look at you cleaning. I'm not just cleaning up because I have <laughs> but stuff But if, if you could keep them in an envelope, as Dermot was saying, instead of a plastic bag, because they'll sweat in a plastic bag. So yeah. an envelope, label them, because with the best will in the world, you're not going to remember what they were if you don't put a little uh, name exactly. on Exactly. And in these times of austerity, you know, people worry about spending on anything. That's one way that you can propagating your own by collecting the seed or taking cuttings really mm. from now on in the garden of mm-hmm. more shrubby stuff uh, really works very well. Mary Staunton and Dermot Gavin from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it from Playback Daily so mind yourself till next time. <laughs>